Welcome into Fordham Conversations. Emmanuel Barbari with you on this Sunday morning. A big week in the United States. A new president and vice president sworn in. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris take over in the executive branch. But we're going to take a step back today beyond what's ahead, beyond what this week was. How do we get here? And I think most would agree it was tumultuous, to say the least, whether it be election challenges, whether it be alternate sets of facts that the country is operating on right now in terms of what really transpired in the general election. As Abraham Lincoln famously said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So this is a big question that needs to be addressed moving forward. How will voting rights and voting laws be assessed and implemented into the future to make sure that public faith in the election process is true and strong and you don't enter a new presidential term with a certain portion of the country not believing the sanctity and validity of the sacred process of voting and elections. Going to bring on a special guest today to discuss it. John Davenport is a philosophy professor at Fordham. He's penned several op-eds about politics, voting rights, and the like. We're going to dive deep into the topic of elections today and hope to have him back on in the future as well to talk about policy agendas and some of the big questions facing the country in the coming months and the coming years. This is John Davenport on Fordham Conversations. Part of what has led us into a situation where the Capitol building was breached by violent Trump supporters on January 6th is that belief that that an election could have been stolen. And you hit on an interesting note, alternative sets of facts. We don't necessarily know as a country where we agree on an issue like, was the election legitimate? How do you think that's possible to be solved coming together on a certain sets of facts rather than being on two completely different ends of the spectrum? And this level of doubt about the validity of elections really hasn't been seen. Well, there were a couple cases earlier in the 20th century, but really you'd have to go back to like 1876 to see things uh, on a par with what we've got today. It's a disaster for this country that people on different political sides don't necessarily all believe in the integrity of the election. And that's got to be addressed. In part, it's driven by the conspiracy theories that we were just mentioning. But there's another element to it. During the pandemic, the massive increase in the amount of mail-in ballots is completely understandable. New rules had to be adopted in many states sort of quickly, uh, almost on the fly. Uh, those were some of the things that were then challenged in court after the election was completed. But for example, why do we have uh, ballots being counted three days after the election in some states, but not in others. Shouldn't there be uniform rules around the country? And the question of signature matches, uh, are these mail-in ballots valid? It was just almost like a perfect storm uh, for conspiracy theory possibilities. It's so easy in that kind of an environment to convince people that they're seeing something, much as so many people have thought they've seen UFOs or aliens over the years, right? Uh, what could be a totally innocuous something that shows up on video is circulating and millions of viewers see it and they're convinced that someone is uh, um, inserting hundreds of thousands of illegal ballots. So there have got to be measures taken to restore faith, especially in mail-in ballots, I think, because those clearly are here to stay. Uh, may, maybe not at the same level as we just had in, in 2020, 
uh, but probably um, they're going to be pretty popular because people find them convenient. So we have to find some way of making sure that people trust uh, the outcome of mail ballot counts. That's essential. Almost the perfect storm, you're right, in the sense that a pivot to a relatively new system that hasn't been tested on a mass scale before in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of massive distrust of the elected leaders that are supposed to represent the people. And then, again, like you said, it's not even at this point a matter of fact as to whether an election could be quote-unquote stolen, but why wouldn't it be because of that level of mistrust that the public has? So do you believe it's almost the perfect storm that that transpired this year that led us to this, this particular point? Right. So in an environment where people already believing things they shouldn't be, you know, all kinds of misleading sources, uh, you insert into that uh, these new election procedures. So it, then it's very easy to convince people uh, that fraud is, is, has been, uh, has been uh, perpetrated. And uh, there are going to be a few cases, uh, what uh, people on the Democratic side often will call irregularities, should be admitted. Of course, with mail-in ballots, there's going to be a few, maybe, you know, in some races, just a handful, but maybe 20, 30, 100 cases where someone's mailed in a ballot for one of their relatives or someone who passed away. Well, you know, I know he would have wanted me to vote for this candidate. So someone might do that and they're not, you know, for whatever reason, clued in enough to to realize that that's illegal. Uh, And just a few cases like that, which no way are going to swing the outcome uh, of one of these states they get publicized and, you know, that, that creates an impression that maybe the whole thing is one vast conspiracy. So down the road, we probably need Congress to enact uniform national standards, which we really have never had in this country, uh, at least for um, perfecting mail-in ballots. So some way of matching signatures, how much, uh, you know, does a signature have to match or given the, the great difficulties with that kind of a process, maybe a pin number, that everyone receives, that they have to enter on their ballot to make sure that it's going to verify that it's theirs. Uh, if the ballot is challenged when it comes to the uh, vote counting building, wherever the county clerk or wherever they're doing this, there should be some way for the uh, voter to perfect or to you know show that the ballot is in fact theirs, so that it can be counted. Right, so that would make it easier for people to believe. I think in the uh, integrity of the outcome. How fragile, in your mind, is undertaking something like that? Constitution right now leaves elections to the states, and it would take a big overhaul in order to make a national standard. You had just about a month ago a state like Texas joining with other Republican-leaning states to, to sue states that went towards President Biden in this election. With a country this divided, how fragile do you think a topic like that is, and how vulnerable could it lead, leave the country in future elections? Well, I, I will say, first of all, I think we're very vulnerable. And in two years, uh, and especially in the next presidential election in four years, we could see things far worse than what we just witnessed if we don't take some kind of action. Obviously, the new Congress has got to address the COVID pandemic and the rollout of vaccines and economic uh, questions first and foremost. But after that, I think there's actually a real opening here to be able to talk about these voting processes. Now, it's always possible that uh, the Supreme Court could reject uh, these sorts of standards 
some fairly minimum national standards have been passed in the past. I mean, Congress does have the power, for example, to set election day. Uh, it could rule that election day should be a national holiday. I think probably the courts would allow federal law to dictate, for example, that every ballot that's mailed or postmarked by election day should be counted in every state. Uh, that every state should have, for example, two early voting days if people want to vote in person. Uh, that uh, you know every state should provide enough uh, boxes or collection points for mail ballots uh, to ensure that people don't have to drive, you know, five hours to get to one. So some minimal standards like that probably could survive a constitutional challenge. But probably the most important thing to realize is that there's some possibility at this moment uh, of compromise across the, as bitter as the debate has been. The reason for that is that, um, frankly, there are a lot of Republicans who need some kind of a face-saving way out. Uh, at least that would be my take on it, that not only Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and others who have you know, been fanning the flames of conspiracy theories, uh, but other even more moderate Republicans like Rob Portman, for example, who have you know, cast some doubt on the validity of elections in their state, uh, when they really shouldn't have. They, they had no good excuse for that. But they need to be able to tell their voters, look, we have heard your worries uh, and we're taking action. You know, We have created these standards that will ensure that those questions or doubts about the validity of the election in 2020 don't happen again. So this provides them a real opportunity to say, look, we did something. Uh, we responded, You know, some kind of proactive and on, on uh, the other side, this would be a chance for Democrats to get some of the things that they want uh, to increase voter turnout, which clearly helped them in this last election. Uh, but frankly, also just to, to make our voting processes uh, more ethical, right? Conform to basic moral standards. I mean, there's no reason why uh, in one state, you know, someone can wait in line for five or 10 minutes to vote, while in another state, they end up having to queue for eight hours in order to have their vote count. I mean, that just shouldn't happen. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think there's an opportunity here, but it requires uh, Senate leaders, right? The Democratic leaders in both houses, but especially the Senate, really are going to have to push these things hard in order to get them done. And most importantly, as you mentioned before, bipartisan measures uh, on the forefront. So you mentioned vote by mail, and it seems by all accounts that that is here to stay. 159 million people participated in the general election. That's the highest voter turnout percentage-wise since 1900. So if you limited vote by mail, that would inevitably be seen as a form of voter suppression that would take us down from the turnout we had in this, this past general election. In an op-ed that you penned, you said mandatory minimum vote by mail options in every state would be part of your proposal with every ballot postmarked by election day counted. And that was a big distinction this year, whether it's oh, yeah. the deadline of November 3rd and anything after that received in the mail that was sent before November 3rd, does it count or not? And that's the big question. How do you think that could be done in a responsible way where people aren't left wondering why is there a three-day span where they mm -hmm. quote unquote know the margin and can work to overcome that margin? Well, there's definitely um, bad optics uh, that we're going to have to get used to with that. It's just because we're not, we haven't seen this in previous elections. I mean, the, there's no way with mail-in ballots coming in, say, three, two or three days after the election, that you're going to be certain 
of the outcome in some closed states. So frankly, I, unfortunately, we're just gonna have to learn to be patient with that. I don't think there's any other solution. But uh, if people can see that you know, impartial inspectors are available to check you know, that ballots have been received in time, uh, you know, that observers of the vote count from both major parties can be present and if there's a challenge to the integrity of a ballot, that maybe there's even a, a, a judicial official of some kind you know, who's empowered in a special role to get this done as quickly as possible. I also think it would be very important and valuable uh, and restore public confidence to have um, the same national standards for recounts and close races apply everywhere. So a little bit less decided on the state level, uh, a little bit more uniformity across the country. So for example, um, you know, if the vote is within one percentage point within a state, uh, that there's an automatic recount. You don't have to have the president of the United States calling up uh, the governor of Georgia and trying to strong arm him um, on a recorded call uh, to, you know, to, to swing ballots or to find new ballots. For so we, we can predict what's going to happen. We all know it may be three days until a result is called in certain states. If it's close enough, we're guaranteed a process of recounting that we all can believe in. And uh, that observers from you know, different major parties are there. And uh, when there is a challenge, that the, the clerk's office uh, can go back to the, to the voter who submitted that ballot and say, hey, is this really you? Prove that it was. Uh, and so you know, we, we have ways of solving this problem. Um, short of going to an all online vote, I don't know that there's, which would have a whole set of other problems connected with it. Uh, I don't know that there's any other viable way to ensure people of the integrity of the process other than taking all these steps. Uh, and you know, a lot of people just don't know, frankly, how the vote's conducted in their state. So a lot of people have been discovering this stuff at the last moment uh, in 2020. There are other, if I might just briefly mention, I mean, there are other clear problems with mail-in ballots that we've seen just um, with the organization of, of the process. A lot of people didn't get their ballot in time. I know several people uh, for whom the ballot never arrived. Uh, so, you know, they're just those sorts of problems with the mail. The post office would have to be given extra funding uh, and, you know, training and, and uh, clear procedures to handle this massive new influx, which they haven't had to, to face before. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Emmanuel Barbari talking with Fordham philosophy professor John Davenport about voting rights, the American elections process, and restoring faith in that very system. And you wonder, of course, during those, let's say it's three days before the deadline in which it could be counted in the mix, you're trying to ensure the transparency that people don't think votes could be being fabricated during that time. And one of the, the main measures for that is the signature match when it comes to mail-in ballots, which you were alluding to before. Is there a world where the, the signature match wouldn't be in play? Because I, I know there were Democratic operatives who were fighting for no signature match because it was a form of suppression in their minds prior. Mm -hmm. yep. But without a signature match, it is far easier to lead on that belief that votes during that three-day window could be fabricated. Right. Uh, so some other method would have to be used here to, you know, to verify ballots if it wasn't via a signature match. And uh, yeah, so the pin number one has been suggested. Um, 
you know, that uh, the ballot comes with uh, tracing numbers, of course, and that it can be traced where it, you know, when it's coming to the voter, when it's coming back from the voter uh, to the clerk's office, that you could, you know, trace its movements, even perhaps the use of blockchain technology. This is an area where we need creative suggestions and, and, and solutions from technical experts. Because honestly, the problem with signature matches is if you look at how people sign their names, they vary maybe 60, 70% even. If, if you're just waking up in the morning and you're really tired versus, you know, if you've had one cup of coffee too many, uh, you know, then uh, your signature will look different. Different pens, different times of day. It's hardly an exact science, um, but something has to be done to verify ballots. We can't just have you know unverified ballots being mailed uh, from wherever. I mean, so so that's really important. Perhaps um, some kind of multi-factor authentication, as we have to do for uh, so many websites these days, right? Where you know, look, you know, if your ballot is mailed not from your home zip code where the clerk sent it to, then you have to go through an extra step or something like this. Um, it, it's those sort of measures that have to be thought through. This isn't something that you can throw together in 10 minutes and bring to the Senate. It's got to be really carefully considered. Um, and it's going to require compromise. One of the things that this is a very different topic in some ways, but it would actually also help um, reduce the, uh, the tensions over closed states would be just to adopt um, a uniform national standard for ranked choice balloting in every state, or perhaps to say, this is the norm unless your state government votes to opt out of it or something like that. So that we aren't literally just trying to force states to a national standard, which might not survive a court challenge. Um, because what happens then is that with ranked choice balloting, um, people who are voting for third party candidates, when their candidate doesn't finish in the top two or comes in last in some cases, their votes reassigned. This will make races less close. Uh, you, you won't see these razor thin margins, you know, in say Georgia uh, or um, perhaps even larger states like Pennsylvania as often. It can still happen, but it's going to be more rare if you have ranked choice voting. Uh, so you just get a kind of clearer uh, trend even before all the mail in ballots have been counted with that. So that's another thing people have to get used to. They have to understand how ranked choice ballots work. But once that, if that were done uh, in all federal races, but especially in the presidential election, it would just make things more clean cut. Maine was the first state this year to use it in a presidential election, the ranked choice system. And for those who are unaware, you can actually rank your candidates and, and have multiple lines on your ballot based on how many candidates there are. Do you think that could also create the viability of more minor party candidates having a potential shot and not scaring people away from, from voting for the spoiler. Absolutely. Uh, that's really its main benefit. Uh, the benefit I just mentioned of uh, making elections, uh, you know, uh, cleaner in the sense that they have a more decisive result earlier uh, is really secondary. But that very point that it makes third parties more viable uh, is also precisely the reason why it might be hard to get it through Congress. Uh, because uh, it's not necessarily in the political interests of people in close races. So it could make even some races in the House that are at the moment fairly safe for the candidates who hold them, it could make those races tighter. Uh, so it probably would be resisted by a lot of uh, rank and file members of both major parties. And it's something that really has to be pushed 
from the grassroots. It's it's really a, a populist movement. Um, to hopefully populism can take on uh, a better face and be more productive and and constructive in the next few years. But this would be one cause that's really worth 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 taking up uh, and uh, and pushing. There are a couple others as well. Uh, but this would just change the landscape because, as you say, you could vote for the libertarian candidate if you want and rank the Republican your second choice. You could vote for the Green Party candidate uh, and then rank the Democrat your second choice. Uh, these are, and so your vote will be reassigned in almost all cases uh, unless one of those third party candidates becomes so popular that they actually you know, could win outright. Um, part of what beyond the mail-in ballots that we've discussed, what needs to happen is for the, the, the tricks, the dirty pool, right, the gaming of the system to be massively reduced. Uh, and at the moment, without ranked choice ballots, we're seeing things like Republicans donating to Green Party candidates so that they hope that they will you know, swing the election by siphoning off enough Democratic votes. We don't want, we want a, less of that kind of stuff. Uh, another easy thing to do um, is to, you know, put large penalties in federal law on anyone who spreads misinformation about, say, when people are supposed to vote or where. Or and there's there was some of that in the last election too. Another um, cheap trick, which uh, seems to be becoming more popular, is um, to pay someone with an, a name similar or even identical to your main opponent uh, to run in the race, so that people get confused as to which candidate they're trying to vote for. I mean, how low can we go? We, this, this should not be happening in the United States. So yeah, federal law can solve a lot of these problems. And that's one area that certainly contributes to the toxicity of the, of the two-party system and, and makes people want to move on, essentially. Now, as we look forward, one area that President Trump really harped on in this past election when it came to mail-in balloting was solicited versus unsolicited whether you ask for the ballot or you're automatically mailed to mail-in ballot one of the swing states that adopted an unsolicited system was nevada which came under harsh scrutiny in the general election can you hash out for anyone who may not be aware how that works in terms of election transparency whether you ask for the ballot or or don't request it yeah that that's a big issue and it's a hard one to compromise on because it seems like it's one or the other, right? <laughs> How can you split the difference between solicited or unsolicited? And, and of course, if they're unsolicited, uh, and I believe that's how it was in New Jersey as well. Basically, if you're registered, that's where I, I live. Uh, you're registered, you're going to get a ballot. So there's this kind of, if you will, from the Republican point of view, massive ballot dumping. You know, ballots may be going to people who, um, you know, are, aren't even mentally competent to understand what, you know, what's in front of them. Um, Ballots may be coming uh, to people who you know, are deceased, but who are not removed from the voter roll. So all those sorts of doubts start to creep in. Um, perhaps there could be, well, let, let me, let me uh, pivot from that slightly and come back to that issue to say two other things that I think would really help reduce worries about you know, too many unsolicited ballots would be um, the double counting of all ballots. That's a sort of, you know, that you, you count everything twice uh, and investigate any anomalies or disagreements. That's a simple, um, although it, you know, increases the cost of running the counting a little bit, that's a simple method to make sure that errors are caught. It's used in so many other contexts. Um, double entry bookkeeping for your business, right? 
So you just do a kind of blind double count system. Uh, and another thing would be a national voter registration system. Maybe hard to convince enough states to go with it early on, but we need to start introducing this idea. Uh, that, for example, would ensure that, you know, ballots aren't going from Nevada to someone who's not lived in Nevada for 10 years and has been voting in another state somewhere else. These are some of the worries that, because a national registry would pick up, oh, this person has a driving license now in Massachusetts, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe has voted in a Massachusetts race or something. They shouldn't be getting a ballot from another state. Uh, it would, this registry would also take into account information, say, from uh, the coroner's office for uh, death certificates. So a national registry should reduce errors in the system. I know people are afraid of this kind of thing. At least in some quarters, it sounds like, you know, too much Big Brother. But uh, this kind of a national registry would have to be run by an independent commission. Um, you know, like we have with the um, uh, with the Federal Reserve Bank, right? These aren't politicians. They're uh, impartial technical experts we can trust this sensitive information with. Uh, but that would make, I think, you know, sending uh, mail-in ballots unsolicited at least a little bit more palatable. Uh, because you would know that they were really only going to people who definitely live in your state uh, and, uh, you know, aren't registered somewhere else. How much would election reporting reform help this issue in the sense that you saw the blue shift in this election? The in-person votes were reported first, and then you saw a blue shift when the mail-in ballots were reported. There are some laws that prohibit a uh, state from holding back results and, and releasing them all at one time. but but how much could that help in your mind? That's an interesting question. It might be worth experimenting with it. I mean, the other thing you could do uh, is to say that the state can't release any results until all the mail-in ballots have been counted three days after, or you know, a day after the last of them come in, so maybe four days after the election is done. Um, I mean, that inevitably would create you know lots of speculation based on uh, exit polling. <laughs> and uh, similar sorts of, you know, efforts by journalists. Um, very hard with our First Amendment to, um, uh, you know, to contain or, or limit that, but you could certainly limit what state officials disclose. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that might help because we're not used to seeing uh, these results kind of, you know, trickle in in that way. I mean, we're used to seeing it on election day itself. Well, oh, the state's trending one way, but, you know, once the major city is reported, it could all be different. So we're all familiar with that. We just aren't used to this with uh, ballots coming in late. Now, in the one case where that did happen was in the election in for the presidential election with Florida, deciding the matter uh, 20 years ago, where it was so close that even, you know, mail-in ballots coming um, from um, service members abroad, uh, you know, coming from uh, people in the Army and Navy and Air Force uh, uh, who were stationed somewhere outside the United States could have made a difference. And it's, it might be an interesting piece of history worth noting uh, that uh, the Republican lawyers, including Ted Cruz on uh, Bush's team at the time, were arguing to count um, even ballots mailed after election day um, because they thought that this would help <laughs> George W. Bush at the time. So uh, it's funny how the shoe could be on another foot. When we, we just need to have uniform standards for this kind of thing. So we know that they aren't being changed by particular officials during the election process to favor their side, right? The rules of the game are set 
uh, and the referee is determined before the players come onto the field and start taking the ball around. That's that's the, the way to solve this. Big thanks to John Davenport for joining this episode of Fordham Conversations. A lot of fun chatting with him, really interesting discussion, and a lot of ideas to grapple with. And there's certainly a sense of urgency that this needs to be addressed with in the next Congress, at the executive level as well, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris sworn in. How will future elections be held in a way that the entire country can get on board and accept that result, regardless of any irregularities ranging from small to a broader scale? How can people know exactly what has transpired? How can there be transparency and how can there be that common faith in the result? A lot to unpack and a lot to be addressed in the coming years. If you missed any of today's interview, you can go to WFUV.org to catch the full conversation. Until next week, for WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Emmanuel Barbari.